Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, October 29th, we're studying 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8-16. through 16. St. Paul lists qualifications for other servants in the church, those who would serve as deacons, before reminding Timothy of the importance of the confession of the truth that is given in the church. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us Pastor Tim Eden. Pastor Eden serves at Bethel Lutheran Church in Bryan, Texas. Pastor Eden, welcome to Sharp Iron. Hi there. Thank you so much. It's good to be with you. As we get started this morning, Pastor Eden, let's talk context just briefly. We're in 1 Timothy 3, the second part of the chapter. What do we need to know about what Paul's said so far, where we've been, that'll help us with our text for today? Well, most immediately, uh, we come off of the section on uh, qualifications for overseers. And so while we have uh, uh, some some parallels, some similarities here as we head into um, uh, the, the words on deacons, um, that that is definitely in our minds, um, and again, noting who Timothy is, uh, as the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, uh, a young uh, pastor himself. Um, uh, these words then are are helpful not only for him specifically, um, but uh, also speaking to the larger larger congregation as they, um, as we all uh, consider um, overseers, deacons. Um, and even various vocations. Um, and then the other thing that uh, we'll get into um, and is important in a contextual way as well, um, truth has, has been um, a topic uh, at least touched on in First Timothy so far. And here again in the second section that we address today, it comes up again uh, very, very directly. Uh, and so this uh, idea of truth and, and false teaching um, comes into play a lot here as well. So I'm going to go ahead and read the text. And as you said, there are two distinct sections, one that deals with qualifications for deacons, one where Paul comes back to that topic of the truth and the importance of, I mean, we can, I think we say it like this, sound doctrine. That's the way he's talked about it previously. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm going to go ahead and read it for us, and then we'll we'll look at it, particularly with an issue you already brought up. We've just talked about qualifications for overseers. Now we've got qualifications for deacons, and we want to wrestle a little bit with the relationship between these two offices. So the text, 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 16. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon. 
but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's the text for today, 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 16. So verses 8 through 13 is what we would call the first section, dealing with the qualifications Mm -hmm. for deacons. So before we get into specifics here, let's try to do a bit of compare and contrast. We just read verses 1 through 7 yesterday, the qualifications for overseers. And yesterday we talked about how the New Testament speaks of this office of the pastoral ministry using a variety of terms, but it's talking about the same office, whether that term is overseer, as Paul gives here in 1 Timothy 3, or elder, presbyter in the Greek, or pastor, shepherd, poimen in the Greek, that those are just different terms that the New Testament uses for one office. Today's text, we've got qualifications for deacons. Pastor Eden, are deacons, is that another name for a pastor, or are we talking about something different here? What do you think? It it seems pretty clear. While there are some connections from the one office to the other, deacons does seem to be distinct. Uh, Honestly, the the biggest, sort of the assumed reference here, I think, for us is Acts chapter 6. Uh, Although the word deacon isn't used there explicitly, uh, that is when uh, we have the apostles finding themselves wrestling with not only focusing on the ministry of the word, but also uh, trying to take care of the needs of of the people. And and this is then where they, uh, we might say, institute this office uh, in a sense, or at least set as part uh, these uh, seven men for this work. And there are many parallels then, it seems to be, from from the work of those seven uh, to what we see described here uh, in this section on on deacons. Even just that word, deacon, uh, coming from uh, the Greek word for servant in in sort of a general way. And so there is this uh, clear distinction between overseer, uh, pastor, elder, um, compared to deacon uh, working in more of a servant uh, serving role um, when it comes to the the tangible things maybe so the the distinction between the I guess that's where we're starting the conversation is really the contrast between the two because there is a lot of similarity and we'll talk about that but the distinction yeah, yeah. is that the the overseer and to go back to act six the concern there for the apostles was that they would give up their time with the word of God to serve tables. And it's not that serving tables, distributing food to those who need it, it's not that that's unimportant, but that wasn't the office that the apostles had been given. And it seems that that Mm -hmm. teaching office has been continued in what the New Testament would call overseer, elder, pastor, as we, we listed earlier. That's that teaching office. And this office of serving, taking care of the physical needs of others, the distinction is that it doesn't involve that teaching aspect. It's more focused on bodily needs, caring for the church of God in a in an important but different way from the office of the pastor. 
Yeah, well said. And, and that's one of the things that we do notice in the list of qualifications here. You already highlighted it is uh, one thing that is listed in the qualifications for overseers is the ability to teach. And that is a notable one that is not listed in the qualifications for deacons. Now, there are other differences and even a, a lot of um, descriptors or adjectives for qualifications for overseers that we don't see with deacons. But the similarity is the general character. One distinct difference, again, starting with differences, is uh, this ability to teach. That is not explicitly mentioned with deacons and, again, doesn't seem to be an emphasis when it comes to the office or role of deacon. So with with that, well, let's talk a little bit about the similarities then, because we've looked at the main difference. What are the the similarities that we see between overseers and deacons then with that difference in mind? Uh, similarity, I would say in general, in an overall sense, is uh, character. Uh, um, we see, uh, again, the deacons, well, well, actually even backing up a second, uh, it's interesting that uh, uh, the Apostle Paul even writes it with deacons likewise. Uh, to me, that word necessitates a, a connection or at least a similarity. Uh, you know, he's he's just described the qualifications for overseers, and now likewise, deacons must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, uh, not greedy for dishonest gain. Uh, those words aren't necessarily used exactly as they are in the first few verses of chapter three for overseers. Yet as you picture what that would look like or who that person would look like, we, we picture similar people, similar character, uh, upstanding, uh, honorable uh, uh, men to, uh, to fit these, these qualifications. Another major similarity that stands out is, as the qualifications go on is uh, the ability to uh, manage one's own household, uh, uh, manage one's children, uh, and so again, this leadership aspect and uh, and that, that in in the home that then would lead into uh, positive leadership in in the, the household of God as well. Now, before we start looking more specifically at some of these qualifications, and I know we won't get to all of them today, but mm -hmm. one of the things we talked about yesterday when it comes came to the matter of overseers is, you know, that term that we use. And and one of the terms that's used for the office of overseer in the New Testament is elder, which, as we pointed out yesterday, when we hear the word elder in the New Testament, generally we need to read that as pastor, because the way that most churches in our tradition are going to speak of an elder, that's a different office. Now, yeah, yeah. and I, I don't know how, how Bethel Bryan works, but in at Grace Smithville, we don't have anyone who is given the title of deacon. So does this, I mean, we, we've already distinguished this office from the office of pastor. Does this office still exist in the church today? And if so, where does it show up? Gosh, that's a great question. Because uh, something I've, I've wondered myself, uh, and I think there are some parallels that we would see between our current day elder and uh, the biblical text of, of deacon. Again, the distinction of uh, teaching, and, and we would then include the, the preaching roles, um, where the pastor, the overseer, um, takes on those tasks, is called to take on those tasks, and our current day lay elders um, are not 
um, given that same calling and task. And so instead, the focus on serving. Now, uh, I guess depending on your congregation and uh, the the primary roles and responsibilities of lay elders in um, each congregation, uh, it may fit closer to that diaconal office or or less. Um, I think so. In some ways, to answer your question, I think it does in part show up there. Um, another newer thought to myself, actually, uh, is that was brought to me in the last 12 months or so is, um, our commission minister, uh, description that we have in the LCMS, um, as a, as a manifestation of this, uh, diaconal office. And that's one that I've had to, I'm still kind of pondering and, and chewing on a little bit, but I wonder if that's an, a, an appropriate connection for, where the diaconal office uh, shows up in our current church polity today. And uh, you might you might be onto something there or whoever put you onto that. I I think maybe yeah, onto something. Yeah. That that there is that that element within what we would call our commission ministers or sometimes we refer to them as auxiliary offices mm-hmm. that that are there to support and uphold the preaching of the gospel. They don't do it themselves in the same way that the overseer, the pastor does, but they're there to support it. And they often do so in this role of, of service, which again, as you pointed out, that's what the word deacon actually means, one who serves. And that does connect mm-hmm. back to Act 6. And I think, I think too, generally speaking, the way that I've often thought of it is that what we refer to as elders within our congregation— Again, those who are there to uphold and support the office of the ministry that does the preaching of the gospel, and they do that through service, that that is one manifestation of what St. Paul here describes. So with with that, and, and, and maybe there, I don't know that there's, there's always an easy answer, at least in our context as to how it shows up, but I do think that those are examples that we could point to. So when I, when I think about who I would, who should serve as an elder at Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, the words of St. Paul in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13, come into mind, that, that we should consider these as qualifications for that office, even though we give it a slightly different name. And similarly, when we consider those who would serve in commissioned minister spots within the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, that these qualifications should be on our minds. So let's, let's think about some of these that are listed here. And again, as, as you pointed out, several of them— are almost exactly the same as what we we looked at yesterday, particularly the matter of managing the household. That's a, a big deal for Paul in the first part of this chapter. It continues to be a big deal here. Some mm-hmm. of some of these, I think, are are a bit. Uh, I don't know. They have maybe a, a slightly different emphasis or a slightly different flavor than what he said. I'm just going to read a little bit and, and feel free to uh, you feel free to comment. So, deacons yeah. likewise must be dignified not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. I think the not addicted to wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, both really were covered yesterday, but the, the terms dignified and not double-tongued, again, have a, a slightly different emphasis or a slightly different flavor than some of the things Paul said yesterday. What, what's, what's he getting yeah. at with those couple terms? Uh, well, I have to admit that Luther was uh, quite helpful, even particularly on those two terms. Uh, a dignified, a word that maybe we use in our common language, and so might just make sense. Um, another helpful word that was brought to my attention is honorable. 
Uh, so just sort of in this general, uh, a more literal translation might be serious, actually, the word serious there. But um, but for us, someone who is um, honorable, upstanding, uh, venerable, uh, maybe, um, uh, is, is this first, and I would say maybe an overarching term, uh, as I think this out loud now, uh, for, for this section. Um, so again, when we're trying to picture who would, who would be fitting for uh, the role of a lay elder in our congregation or the role of a commission minister, um, uh, someone who is dignified, honorable. Uh, the double tongue term is, is quite interesting um, because uh, not only does it speak to how we use our mouths in a general way and our, and our words and our language, um, but uh, Luther was helpful in the sense of looking at the, how someone finding themselves in this calling, this vocation of, of deacon, would potentially find themselves envious of someone in that, quote-unquote, higher office of overseer. And, and how easy it would be then for someone to be double-tongued, meaning, sure, in, in, in the presence of the, of the bishop, the overseer, the pastor, they speak well to his face, yet then go and, and turn around when they're not in his presence and speak poorly uh, about that same individual. Uh, and, and how it'd be possible for this, for envy or jealousy to somehow creep in um, because of uh, the idea of, well, am I really content with this calling that God has given me um, to serve in this way? Uh, I really wish I was a pastor or maybe even outside of the church entirely. <laughs> um, you know, I wish this is what my calling was or this is where my vocation lies. Mm. And and that was really helpful to me, not just from that term, but then again, considering this role of deacon as a whole, uh, and even for our own lives, regardless of whether we are officially, uh, formally in church work or not, what is our vocation? What is the calling that God has given to us? Or maybe multiple vocations is a better way of saying it. And are we, are we content with those? Uh, do we serve Christ in the callings that God has given us to the best of our ability? Or are we discontent? Are we seeking uh, or desiring another calling? Are we, are we speaking poorly of those who, who maybe are in a different calling or position? Hmm. Uh, there's, there's certainly a lot of application. Even if, even if we don't find ourselves in these positions, there's application here to all Christians. And that's one mm-hmm. of the points we made yesterday is that a lot of what these qualifications are for overseers and qualifications for deacons today are things that really all Christians should be aspiring to. They, they come out of the fruit of the spirit. And, and so particularly then for both overseers and deacons, those who are in these offices in the church, how much more then should they seek after these gifts and, and aspire to these, these character traits that, that come out of the fruit of the spirit. Verse nine, again, it's not all that different from what we read yesterday, but again, I think just has a, a slightly different emphasis to it. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, which is really it's just beautiful language there. And so, I mean, maybe you know we've talked about the difference that the there's not the qualification able to teach in this list, but it, this verse would indicate, at least to me, that there's not that doesn't mean you're uneducated and that doesn't mean you don't know the faith. And in fact, you do as those who would be a deacon that they would actually Mm -hmm. listen 
to the overseer who's teaching the faith such that they hold on to it with a clear conscience. It really, I mean, it really speaks highly, I think, of, of this office that they would know the faith that well and cling to it with the kind of description that Paul gives it here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, we may, I know I at first, you know, what is, what is he referring to with mystery of the faith? Hmm. Uh, uh, and, and there's potentially some, some depth and complexity there. Uh, first and foremost, I have to note that it, I think is an allusion to what he's going to speak to in a few verses. When we get to the second section here, uh, this mystery word comes up again. Um, uh, and so we won't dive too deeply into that now, but, um, but as you said, holding to uh, the mystery, or we might even in this sense, say the truth of the Christian faith and, and, and knowing that uh, it, it reminds me of, of, especially when we then continue, maybe it's more of the beginning of verse 10 that reminds me of this, but um, a fit together, uh, let them be tested first. This is not a, a new convert. Again, going back mm-hmm. to the, uh, the description in, in the first part of chapter three, uh, the deacon also uh, has to have been someone who has been in the Christian faith, um, knows uh, the, you know, the basics, but also the, the, the mystery, the, some of that depth that is there, and so that they can uh, function in their role, um, continue to, to listen and learn from the, the pastor and, and one another, um, but also in, in a way be able to maybe communicate that at times him or himself to, to others. Uh, as, we, as we reflect back on, on Acts chapter 6 even, uh, uh, Stephen, one of the you know, again, if, if we're making that connection rightly, which I believe is easy to say, yes, we are. Stephen, one of the first deacons, he did some of that, what we might call or think of as preaching, um, uh, speaking the truth of the Christian faith to others. Um, again, a difference, though, from what we see as uh, the overseers, the pastors, I'm sure things you guys touched on more yesterday, um, of uh, called to preach. Um, but there are times where a deacon and any Christian for that matter, as, as this sort of trickles down is called to uh, share and communicate the truth of the Christian faith. The deacon needs to be able to, to do that to, to an extent. Uh, and so must therefore hold, know uh, the mystery of the faith. Right. I mean, the, the words of, of Peter come to mind about, you know, whenever, whenever it's asked of you, be ready to make that defense. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly yeah. Stephen and Acts chapter, I guess, it's the deacons are listed in six and then he comes on the scene. Maybe is it later in the chapter and in seven and then Philip too in Acts chapter eight, Philip and the Ethiopian that's that Philip is not Philip the apostle. That's Philip the deacon. And and so you certainly see this example of of where these deacons who are not given the teaching office do actually engage in speaking from the scriptures. And that is something that is given to all Christians, even if they are not within that office teaching office that is given to do it publicly on behalf of the whole congregation for the for the church, they still are given the word of God to speak. And so the deacon particularly ought to know it, hold on to the mystery. And, and I, we'll save delving into that for the, the second half of the, of the text, as you said. But that's that's a key part for, for the deacons. Now, we got about three minutes here before our break, Pastor Eden, and perhaps that's, that's enough time to at least mention that here in this text, and I think we talked about this earlier, that the matter of managing households comes up again, 
And, and that's nothing new from the matter of overseers. Uh, one thing that does come up, and this is perhaps in our context, something that we should talk about. You, you get Paul saying, their wives likewise must be dignified. Later in verse 12, he says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. Now, mm-hmm. Paul in 1 Timothy 2 has very clearly stated that the office of pastor is reserved for some men, those who are qualified, as he lays out in the first part of chapter 3. Here we see similar language when it comes to husband of one wife, their wives, when it comes to deacons. In our church, in our tradition, we have deaconesses. Mm. Is there a, a place for, I mean, I, I guess that's my question is, is, is there a place for that within these words from St. Paul? I, I think so. Um, and so there's two thoughts that I'll try to communicate quickly that come to my mind. One is, again, the reaffirmation here for the husband of one wife, um, uh, the, the similarity then to the pastoral office um, uh, of men as leaders of the household. Um, it's reflected here with male deacons, um, uh, and, and, it's, and it's clear as day. Um, there's no question on that. So I, I, for today, we don't have to go down that road, but I, I think that's important to note for our day and our, in our context, in our culture. Um, and, and so then when in verse 11, wives comes up, uh, there's some, there, there's a little bit of ambiguity there um, because again, the, the Greek word for wives is the same as, as women in general. Um, I think first and foremost, it is a clear reference to the wives of deacons. Uh, Again, with that word likewise, uh, they are supposed to then reflect similar, uh, almost identical to verse 8, actually, um, or very, very similarly uh, description of how they are to carry themselves and hold themselves. Yet also, I think because of that ambiguity in verse 11 of that, of that actual Greek word, um, potentially it could be a reference to female deacons or what we call deaconesses. Uh, I could see it maybe as a dual application there, um, uh, almost intentionally ambiguous uh, as a reference to the wives of male deacons, but also in this case, uh, the, the openness for uh, this, as we call, auxiliary role or auxiliary office, um, potentially for, uh, for women to fill um, in some ways and in some functions. Does that answer your question or it, help? It does. It does. And and that was not intended to be a gotcha question by any means. And I think you, you no, answered no, no, it fine, yeah. very well. And, and I appreciate the way that you, you even drew it out there in verse 11 with, with what is there in the Greek and, and is this referring specifically to their wives or to women generally? And also to recognize, just to, to touch back on what we were saying earlier about, you know, where do we see this office in the church today that, you know, sometimes we, we have these offices that may not be this exact, but we're looking for similar qualifications. And and the way that our office of deaconess works today certainly does not violate what Paul speaks about concerning the office of the holy ministry that he reserved for some men at the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three, and does fit in, I think, with this text as you laid out. So uh, those very well said. We're going to go ahead and take our break here, Pastor Eden. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, October 29th. We're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 16. We've got Pastor Tim Eden with us. He serves at Bethel Lutheran Church in Bryan, Texas. Pastor Eden, prior to the break, we were looking at the qualifications for deacons. We left off about verse 13, which again is not different or foreign from what we read concerning the qualifications for overseers yesterday, but again, it has a bit of a different flavor and emphasis. Paul writes, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Sounds like being a deacon is a really good thing for that individual in addition for the church. Yeah, and uh, well said. Um, uh, There are benefits would not be the right way because then it seems like that's why I would serve as a deacon. Mm. But instead, if God has called me to serve as a deacon in one way or another, uh, then um, there is this this promise, uh, as Luther sees it, um, expressed to them. Uh, again, we touched on briefly, there's potential to be in a, a role like this that is uh, maybe secondary or under, in a sense, the pastoral office. Um, there's this potential for envy, for jealousy to creep in. Uh, but instead, uh, it seems that, that God, through the Apostle Paul here, is saying, serve well in the calling that you have been called to. Uh, and this is a good and, and great thing. Um, this is a, a good for you and, and good, as you said, for uh, the church as a whole. And there's this promise sort of attached to this encouragement of, of good service. And really that carries us then into the next section in a way, because as we think about the, the section you covered yesterday on overseers, the section today so far on deacons, why has God put overseers and deacons in place on earth for us? for the upbuilding of his church is the way that I would say it for service to uh, those who are part of the faith. And then we always add for the extension of uh, the, the household of God, the, the growth of, of God's kingdom as he works to bring others into his household as well. I'm going to go ahead and read the rest of the text again, verses 14 through 16, because we are making a, a shift here. We've been spending all this time on these qualifications and now Paul gets back to more of this true doctrine that Timothy needs to hold on to and he needs to teach there in Ephesus. So I'm going to go ahead and reread that. Mm -hmm. This is verses 14 through 16 of chapter three again. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's again verses 14 through 16. Now, Paul starts off with this this brief notice about his his desire to travel, and, and we already know 
Timothy's there in Ephesus. Paul hasn't been able to join him there at this point. He obviously wants to, but in the meantime, in case he doesn't make it, he's going to write this letter. And, and as he, I mean, as he gives this purpose for this letter, it's just a a beautiful text here. He starts with, he wants Timothy to know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Maybe that's the place to start these, these various terms he uses for the church. He starts by calling the church, the household of God. Yeah. Again, this even small section here, uh, even in verse 14, in the first half of 15 shows even Paul's uh, pastoral care for the household of God. Uh, we see maybe his own as an overseer, as a, as a, as a bishop um, for the church. We see and hear his own heart uh, as he wants to come, but I'm not sure how soon I'll be able to get there. So I need uh, to write these things to you. I want to, to care for you, Timothy, as a pastor of a local uh, congregation and, and, and people uh, for, again, for the upbuilding of, of the church, the household of God. And this household idea, I can't help but think of, again, the connection to what we've talked about in the previous sections, where managing one's household uh, is, is speak, spoken of. Um, and also another connection I think of is, is Galatians chapter 6, where uh, the people are referred to as the household of faith. And so it paints a picture for us when we think of church in our day. I think our first thought is to go to the church building. Uh, that's just sort of how we function in our day. And, and this can bring us maybe a step back from that to the, the household idea being more of this uh, familial idea um, starts to be again that focus on on the people, the uh, the gathering, um, and and not only the household of God, but the church of the living God uh, uh, is is noteworthy for us as well. And this is a God who is uh, living, active uh, through His Word, as as we often think of with that passage. Um, but ultimately, it is it is his church, it is his people, uh, pastors, um, overseers, and even then deacons. Uh, we simply serve under under him, the head, uh, God, and 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 his son Jesus Christ. One of the the things that I think is it, it strikes me, and maybe this is because I'm a Lutheran, I'm not sure, but the way that at least it's translated in English there in verse 15 is that Paul says, "If I delay." I'm writing this so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. I, I don't know that we often talk about our behavior. Paul, Paul certainly does. I, and maybe, and the reason I said, you know, maybe it's because I'm a Lutheran is because the word behave strikes as a very law oriented word. And sometimes we, we shy mm-hmm. away from those, but, but apparently for St. Paul, as he writes to Timothy here, the way that Christians behave within the church is very important. And, and I think uh, the, the move I think he makes is that he's going to tie how you behave as a part of the church to what is taught in the church. That, those two things go hand in hand, the, the truth that is taught and the way that we live according to the truth. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, in prepping for today, I didn't ponder the behave term. Uh, it sounds like in the same way you did um, uh, as you hear that, but but absolutely agree completely. And, and that actually then ties us into probably the, the crux of these verses. And that is this truth piece uh, and, and the intimate connection between the church of God, uh, the household of God, however you want to describe it, the assembly, the gathering, um, 
and the truth, uh, the truth of God's word. Uh, that that phrase that is, at first we might think of it as just an addendum there, but um, a, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Uh, this is a description here of the church. And so the truth is is integral to uh, the the very nature of the church, the, the gathering, um, the, the people of God. Um, it, is, it is how we become part of the household of God. It is by the truth uh, of God's word and especially the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. And then it's not just, oh, we're done with that and now we move along. But that, as you are saying, I think, is what then leads to our, our behavior, our practices, our, our way of living. Uh, it, that is all as well founded on uh, the truth of God's word. And and this is where Paul does come back to that theme that he he really hammered home in chapter one, the importance of sound, healthy doctrine, the importance of holding on mm-hmm. to the truth. And the mm-hmm. description that he gives here of the church is a really vivid picture. I, I kind of want to tie together where he calls the, he says, the household of God is the church of the living God. And you mentioned that phrase earlier, that that term living God, and I did I didn't do any careful study. But that that term I often associate with the confession that Peter makes of of Jesus as the Christ. Remember in Matthew sixteen, Ooh. Jesus asks oh, his yeah. apostles, you know, who do people say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? And and Peter famously confesses, You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. And he specifically calls, you know, Jesus the Son of the Living God. And it's right after that where Jesus then tells Peter and the the other apostles that it's on that confession he's going to build his church and he makes that promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I, I mean, it sounds like, you know, and of course that's just one term, the mm. living God, but that same imagery seems to be coming up with St. Paul here that the church of the living God is this, this fortress. I mean, a pillar, a buttress, that's the picture that he's painting there in, in your minds. Where, we're recording this early, but this is going to be air right before the Reformation on, on October 29th. <laughs> and I mean, a mighty fortress is our God. And well, what is what is that pillar, that buttress, that fortress? It's the truth. And and as you said, that's not something that we just start with and then leave behind. But it's it's constantly the what the church is built upon. And very specifically, it's the truth that Jesus is the Christ. That's the central truth of it all, the cornerstone of it all. That's an awesome connection. I, I had not thought of that. And, and yeah, uh, that connection to, to Peter's confession. Um, and, and then again, the similar ideas being expressed there and here of this is uh, the, actually the one thing I note I did make is, is some hymns that come to my mind. The church is one foundation yeah. um, uh, somehow came to my mind from, from these verses or, or again, on uh, my hope is built on nothing less on Christ, the solid rock. So, so this confession of the truth of Jesus Christ, and, and as we'll see in a minute, there's there's some centrality to the truth, you know, the, the crux of it, we might say, um, no pun intended, uh, but, you know, Jesus' death and resurrection, um, but then also this breadth of the truth as well, how, how it goes deep and wide. Yes, we start with a, a center, but there, there is so much as well that then is is intricately woven into and tied to that that central truth um and, and it just continues to to fill out uh, through through the rest of the scriptures 
So that's an awesome connection that, that you made there. I, I love that as that reminder of this is uh, the foundation. Um, and, and I can't help but reiterate as individuals, when we consider this, um, it is this truth and the word of God. Uh, then we tie in the power of the word of God as well. It is this truth that has brought me into the household of God um, uh, through baptism, uh, through the preaching of the word. Um, it is this truth uh, then that also I am called to share with others uh, so that others may uh, become uh, part of the household of God. Or maybe if they already are, maybe built up uh, because every day, I mean, even with, whether we're in a pandemic or not, every day we are needing this truth and reassurance and this comfort of, I have been made part of the household of God, a strong pillar, buttress, um, again, fortress um, that, that I have been brought into by, by God's grace. Uh, how, how comforting and, and, and uplifting that is to, to hear and remember as we consider these verses. Yeah, and I appreciate how you, you said, you know, when we talk about the the crux of the matter, the centrality of the cross, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, that we don't mean that in a minimalistic way, such that like mm-hmm. as long as we have that, the other stuff doesn't matter. Far from it. In fact, because that matters so much, all of God's word matters. And we, we cling to the truth of all of that. I mean, you know, to use the, the building image. I mean, how many how many pillars can you lose before the building falls down? Well, you just really you don't want to find out. Just keep all the pillars. <laughs> so, I mean, and the same is, and it's that's maybe not the precise image that that you've given, but that that this central no, truth, it doesn't, it, it it's not a minimalistic thing that we just kind of forget about everything else. Rather, that central yeah, yeah. truth propels us to l- learn the rest. And see how all the rest support that central truth. So, I mean, and that's yeah, yeah. So let's let's keep. I mean, before well, I don't want to go down. Well, yeah, go down the rabbit trail. Go ahead. No, no, I, no. Because actually, that leads me into not a rabbit trail, but actually this mystery idea um, that that comes back up here in verse sixteen. And and maybe this is where you were wanting to go anyway, uh, because again, there's an aspect to this truth that uh, we might say. I don't know if obvious is the right word for it, but is, but is clear, um, is almost black and white is maybe a, a simple way of saying it. Yet at the same time, this truth has so much depth that there's, that there's mystery too. There's, there's things that we can understand, uh, that we can grasp uh, to a degree in a sense, yet there's also so much of this uh, mystery of the faith referring back to verse nine, um, that is, that is so difficult for us to, to grasp and understand to the extent that we can't fully understand it. And we just, we take it by faith. And this seems to be then what, uh, what the apostle Paul is, is bringing forward to us in the last verse of this section, this, this mystery idea. Yeah. The, the word, the word mystery, I think could lead us in the wrong direction if we think that it's somehow unknowable. But but mm-hmm. but maybe maybe the way to think about it, uh, so you can tell me what you think, is is with like when you're reading, say, a mystery novel. At the beginning of the novel, you don't know what's going to happen, and that's part of the mystery. But the whole point of reading the novel is to uncover the mystery, to discover, and and the way that you 
uncover the mystery is by having it revealed to you. You you can't know it unless someone reveals it to you. And mm-hmm. and that's what's happened for us in Christ. And maybe that that helps tie these things together is that as I consider this this central truth that Jesus Christ has died and risen for sinners so that they would be saved in repentance and faith that that then shines a light on everything else and begins to reveal what otherwise would remain a mystery. And and it's only in the light of that central truth that I can actually understand the rest of it, or, or at least, and, and maybe understand is not the right word, but at least, you know, know what it is and confess yeah. it, even if it doesn't, you know, logically make sense, that kind of thing. And, and that centrality, that, that central piece seems to be what the Apostle Paul is trying to remind Timothy and I'm sure all of his people and hearers as well. Uh, this, you know, we confess that uh, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. And then he goes into these, these final words of this section. And, and what he is reminding them of is this mystery but this mystery that's been revealed to us that we know. It's quite interesting, uh, in my opinion, that uh, this mystery of godliness, when we first read that, at least in the English Standard Version, which is, I, I love as a translation, um, but we think of sort of some abstract, I think, mystery idea. Um, but uh, the first word that the ESV uses, he was manifested. Um, uh, more likely, the Greek is actually... Um, a, a relative pronoun. So who was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit and so on. So this, the mystery is actually the subject of these final verses. And who is that? It is Christ, as you were saying. Uh, and that to me helps these final verses make sense and be that reminder for us of the centrality of the truth, because who the mystery Christ was manifested in the flesh Again, the second person of the Trinity coming to earth and, and taking on the form of human flesh, manifesting himself. Christmas is what we remember, you know, the birth uh, of Christ. Uh, vindicated by the Spirit. Uh, that word vindicated could also be translated justified. And so there's some conversation about what really is being uh, uh, intended by, by that phrase, that second, that second phrase of these six phrases here. The first thing I thought of personally is the resurrection. Um, raised in the Spirit, uh, raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Christ came in the flesh, died, and was raised again. Um, but also another potential um, application of that, uh, what, what Luther seems to emphasize is uh, justification in the sense of the Spirit working in people to believe this, this mystery of faith. Um, so, so multiple potential applications. Uh, but then again, what we see in the rest of these verses may, reminds me of really of the Apostles' Creed or, or just sort of a general creedal statement of what are the basics of the faith? Christ came in the flesh um, along with that, although it's not stated explicitly, his death on the cross, uh, his resurrection. Um, he's seen by angels. Uh, is that in his general work uh, as, as all angels are, are present and, and witnessing his work? Um, or is that potentially a reference to uh, witnesses of his resurrection is what comes to my mind if I'm, if I'm uh, hopefully not projecting on the text, but, but um, pondering it rightly. Uh, and then how that goes out 
through the apostles, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. With, you know, this this the Book of Acts is what comes to my mind most clearly, and tied in with that, maybe not in this timeline, but taken up in glory, Christ's ascension. You know, so we have these, from my perspective, these clear references of the Apostle Paul to here is this truth that we're talking about, the center of it. And and with this mystery idea, yes, it is a mystery to those who have not heard it, uh, who have not been given faith, yet it is being revealed also in the proclamation of the truth. As the word goes out, as it is proclaimed among the nations, uh, this mystery becomes less mysterious, you might say. It doesn't go away as far as the mystery aspect, um, but again, through the Spirit working in us, brings us to faith in in this truth, this foundation for uh, for the Church of God and for our lives. Hmm. I think you're exactly right to see this as a, a creedal statement of sorts that you've got there in verse 16. And it, it's pretty clear, I think, when you look at it in the Greek, that you do have a bit of a, a poetic type of structure here, that, that Paul's mm-hmm. transitioning from his style of writing, you know, generally letter writing, to now a almost like he's quoting a hymn or a creed of some sort. And, and most English translations, yeah, yeah. including the ESV, are going to note that by the way that it's formatted. And I think rightly so. There, There mm-hmm. is a bit of, and I, so I appreciate your, your wrestling with what exactly is he referring to? And this was part of my wrestling with it too. You know, he was manifested in the flesh, I think is, is very clearly a reference to the incarnation, to Christmas and, and all of Christ's earthly ministry. You know, I'm thinking mm-hmm. particularly along the lines of John chapter one, where the word became flesh and dwelt among yes. us or, or later I in that same it. chapter where you know, the idea of manifested that no one's seen God, but God, the one and only he has made him known. He's shown him. So if you want to see, mm-hmm. which I mean, goodness, that's a mystery, isn't it? That if you want to see God, <laughs> look at this man, Jesus, and, and there you'll, you'll see God. And and that's why I think you're, you're exactly right to include not just his, his birth, but really the totality of his ministry culminating in his cross vindicated by the spirit. I I'm, I really, I'm. That's a that's a challenging one, and and looking at it as you pointed out with the Greek, I, I think you're I think you're right to to tie it more to the to the resurrection than anything else, and not to you know not that Luther wasn't onto something, but it sounds mm-hmm. it sounds familiar to the way, for example, Peter talks about Jesus' resurrection in First Peter three when he talks about baptism, he talks about the Christ was made alive in the Spirit, and so I I, I hear that echoes, yeah. seen by angels, man, I you know. Tying that to the resurrection, that's uh, that hadn't crossed my mind, but I, I think you you might be right. The only thing I could think of with that was was Christ's ascension, um, the way the Book of Revelation describes it, where you get this picture of of the Lamb who was slain ascending to the heavenly throne, being surrounded by angels who are all rejoicing. That was the only thing that that came to my mm-hmm. mind. But I, I think I I, I like the way you tie it more clearly to Jesus' earthly ministry and and the the resurrection appearances. Proclaim. Well, part oh, of the reason I, sorry, part of the reason I wonder that out loud uh, is because of, uh, is it a more general messenger's idea, um, mm, that, that word yeah. angels? Um, is it, it contextually here, would it be appropriate to, to translate it as messengers? Again, thinking of witnesses yeah. of direction. Yeah. Maybe I'm yeah. going in a direction I shouldn't, but but wondering out loud with that. No, and that's and that I think that I think that actually if if that is the case, seen by 
again, it's translated in the ESV, seen by angels. The word angel in and of itself simply means messenger. And there mm-hmm. are there are places in the scriptures where the word angel does not refer to a heavenly being, but it simply does refer to an an angel or a messenger. And sometimes in the you know in the New Testament, it, it can refer to an apostle or a pastor. Think the and this is a bit of an aside, but the angels of the the churches in the book of the Revelation, many think mm-hmm. that those mm-hmm. angels are the pastors of those churches, those messengers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think I think that fits that that seen by angels could be seen by you know, the apostles, the the messengers who then went and proclaimed among the nations so that he was believed yeah, exactly. on in the world. And then the, the matter of taken up in glory, again referring to the ascension. So you get this this nice creedal statement. That, that as Paul says, you know, this is what we confess. This is the truth, the center of it all. And, and this, in this, we see the mystery revealed, which is, is just an astounding thing. This really is a, a, beautiful, a beautiful statement from Paul. And it, it really invites this kind of reflection that we've, we've been going through, which I think is one of the, the wonderful things of it. It's, it's directing us to different accounts in the scriptures and, and forcing us to, to really chew on this central truth that Christ is crucified, raised, and ascended for sinners. And and that's the center of it all. That's what Paul's been been emphasizing to to Timothy all along in this letter. Pastor Eden, we've got about two minutes here to to wrap this conversation up, summarize kind of the things we've talked about, and and again point us to Christ, that central truth. Yeah, absolutely. Um thank you again for the time. I've really enjoyed this. I to sort of summarize, um I think again in our first section um, uh, with, with the section on deacons, it makes me consider for myself and, and anybody, um, what is the vocation or calling that God has called me to? Uh, what is uh, the place that he has called me to serve Christ uh, and in what capacities? Um, all uh, one body, many members, um, and some uh, uh, he has called to be uh, pastors and overseers. Some he has called to be deacons. Um, uh, these are the qualifications for one, uh, but, uh, whether you are a deacon or something else, um, serve Christ in your place. Uh, and, but all of this again is founded upon, um, us being made members of, of the household of God, this final section, uh, and this, the, the crux of, of the truth of the faith, the crux of the mystery of the faith, um, being Christ's incarnation, he came and took on flesh. Uh, he died on the cross uh, for us and for the whole world. Uh, he was uh, raised again on the third day. Um, he has ascended into heaven uh, and is still working um, through his spirit and through his messengers that the good news would go forward. So uh, how do we uh, ponder the mystery, uh, still wrestle with the, the parts that are mysterious to us, uh, whether it is Christ's two natures, uh, the Trinity, um, or anything else? Yet, how do we also stay focused on this centrality of the, the truth and not get caught up in, in, in distant mysteries, um, but stay centered on Christ's death and resurrection for us and for others, for our neighbor, uh, who needs to hear that good news also. Pastor Tim Eden is the pastor at Bethel Lutheran Church in Bryan, Texas, helping us this morning with 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 16. Pastor Eden, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you so much, Pastor Apple. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. In Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended, we see God. We see God who loves us, who forgives us, who saves us. That is a mystery to hold on to, truth to confess to the world. 
I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.